You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Acts chapter 2, and when you find Acts chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to turn over to the prophet Isaiah. So just hold your place at Acts 2, and I want you to turn over to Isaiah 55. I want to read a couple of verses there just to kind of set the stage for uh, what we're going to look at today. As we, um, as we prepare for the 40 days of prayer, uh, I want you to begin thinking about, of course, if you're a follower of Christ, this, this applies to you. If you've not put your faith in Jesus yet, we're not asking you to fast or otherwise. We're asking those who follow Jesus to make this commitment. As we're getting closer to February 5th, um, I want you to be asking the Lord, what would he have you do during those 40 days? Not just the fasting, but the goal in this 40 days of, of unified prayer across our church is to to really hear what the Lord is saying because we're distracted, folks. We're just, we're just distracted. So if we need to hear what our Father has to say. So just make sure that um, whatever commitments you make in relation to those 40 days, you follow through with those commitments because I believe that God is God's up to something. He's going to do something amazing in your home, in your heart, in your life. Isaiah 55, check out verse 8. We're going to read a few verses here. For, as, uh, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Go back to Acts 2. The prophet Isaiah is making an analogy here, and he says that just as God provides the rain, and that God provides the rain to the crops and to the forest and to the fields, and that, that rain is absorbed into the ground, and then those seeds that are there birth for, uh, burst forth, come out of the ground, and and as the rain continues to nourish, the, the plants grow, and then eventually they bear a harvest and a fruit back that provides us bread and grain and fruits and vegetables. The prophet Isaiah draws an analogy, and he says, just like God provides rain, God has provided His Word. The 66 books that you have is, is God's Word to you. And if... These 66 books are His Word to us, and, and God has spoken, and God has revealed Himself to us. So then can I offer to you that, that if the Creator of the universe has spoken, and He has provided for us what He wants us to know, that there is nothing greater upon this planet than this book you hold in your hands, that right here you have the revelation of God, your Creator, that He's spoken. And he's continuing to speak. And the prophet Isaiah says that just like that rain provides the crops and the fruit for us to be able to sustain ourselves, God's Word provides for us something that we can live upon, live for, life-changing, sustenance that, that God's Word provides. And as God's Word is proclaimed, it will not return void. In other words, just as rain provides a harvest, the proclamation of God's Word also provides a harvest. Keith, can you turn me down just a little bit? I don't know if I'm hearing some echo up here or what's going on, but there you go. Now you got it right on it. All right. So pastors, we, we use Isaiah 55 a lot, um, especially when we walk out of the building after blowing a sermon. And that happens on, on a regular basis. Uh, in the car, I'll say, 
Well, God's word will not return void. Yay, I'm thankful for that because even in my own weakness and even in my own failures, even in my own brokenness and trying to expound upon God's word and explain what it means and then apply it, I mess it up. And so I take great comfort in knowing that, that God is working in the proclamation of his word to make sure that a harvest comes forth. And that's a work of God, not a work of me. It doesn't matter how fancy my presentations get. It doesn't matter how many illustrations I throw at you. Ultimately, what happens every time I get to stand before you, every time I get to stand and proclaim God's word, it is a work of the power of God, whether I see it manifest itself or not. And I have to have trust in that. In, in just a few weeks, February the 10th, as a matter of fact, I've had the privilege of serving this church seven years. Seven years. Now, <laughs> I didn't say that for that, but, but thank you anyway. Um, now, there are days I feel every bit of that seven years. I've got a little wisdom coming out over here that I'm trying to cover up. And, uh, and then there are other days I'm like, man, where did that seven years go, right? Um, there's so much more we need to accomplish, so much more we need to do. And, and so I just thought, okay, so I'm, I'm going to preach a sermon on a sermon today. Now, now, Peter, when he preached the sermon, it took him about 10 minutes. I'm not going to get done in 10 minutes. I just, just want you to know that. So I started looking back across the seven years. I've been doing a lot of that lately, just kind of, I don't know, just looking back and seeing all the things that God has done and, and trying to understand what God is about to do. So I just thought it would be interesting to say, okay, how many times have y'all had to endure a sermon? So I started looking, and I've got all my sermons. Everyone I've preached here in seven years, I've got it saved, backed up, and all that good stuff. So I just started counting. You know how many, you know how many sermons I've preached here? 343 sermons. Yeah, you know that's right, right? You're feeling that. It's like, I knew it was a lot. I thought it was actually a lot more. I thought we were up in like 10 or 12,000, it seems like. 343 sermons. And, of course, preaching two times, two services, that's 686 times that I've stood before you to, to try to help us walk through God's Word and live it out. So then that got my brain running. You know how much I love numbers, right? So I just got my brain running. So, so any given week on any sermon I'm preparing, and I'm not saying this bragging, please don't hear it that way. I just want you to know that I take seriously what God's called me to do here, that there, there is never a week I spend less than eight hours preparing very, very rare. There might have been a week I was sick or something, but literally every week I'm spending at least eight hours. It's usually more in the 10 to 12, and if it's the beginning of a series, it's 15, 20, 30 plus. So that equates to 2,744 hours of me alone with God in His Word trying to hear what He wants to say to you. And then, of course, I had to take it another step. I, I speak about 115 words a minute. You know where I'm going here. I speak about 115 words a minute. And I started to figure it up by 30 minutes per sermon, but every one of you go, you liar. You 30 minutes? Really? And the nursery workers go, oh, me. Exactly. So, so I figured 40 minutes. 40 minutes, okay? So 40 minutes, 115 words. That's 4,600 words per sermon. I have spoke to you over seven years, 3,155,600 words. That equates for all this gray that's coming out over here. <laughs> Why did I share that? It's because God's word will not return void. Just like the rain waters the earth, and those, those sprouts come up out of the earth, and then they bear fruit. Even though I don't always see it, sometimes I long to see even more and more fruit. The fruit is there. God is working, and, and it's through the brokenness of, of my trying to preach and teach and the messed up ways that I do it and, and how that I get it wrong so many times. And then week after week, year after week, y'all show up. Now, this is the mystery of it all, okay? This is the mystery. So you've got better entertainment at home. You've got Netflix. You've got Amazon Prime. You've got all that stuff streaming right into your house. You can, you can change the channel if you don't like something. You don't get that opportunity. You can't change the channel. You're stuck with me. But you come back week after week. You can't switch channels. You can't change the message or the length. 
Sometimes the message is hard for you to hear, and it's hard for me to, to teach. Uh, you, uh, you would um, hear better sermons probably at home, across the Internet or TV, the big mega this and the mega that. There are men that are much more skilled than me. But yet you, you come here every week. You not only do that, but, but then you give of your tithes and offerings, and those tithes and offerings go into a budget, and that budget goes to pay a salary so I could support my family. So get this, you can't change the channel, you can't change the message, it's the hard stuff sometimes, you keep showing up, and not only that, you people are paying me to do this. Is that not crazy? Here's the thing. Uh-oh, somebody said, well, we can change that pretty quick, right? I mean, no, we, can, we can make some decisions there. I heard that, Alan. You go right ahead. I'm not going to change a thing. <laughs> it's not going to change a thing. Here's the point. Why, why is this? Why, why does this happen? Not only here, but all the way across our world. I'll tell you why. Because God's Word is powerful when it's proclaimed. It does something in you that you, you're not even aware that it's doing sometimes. And I love what I get to do. The Holy Spirit has indwelt, lives inside of that 120 in that upper room, and it's spilled out into the street. And they begin to speak in languages they didn't know previously. And the people who are in the street, probably some 5,000 strong by this point. Remember, this is Pentecost. People from all over the Roman Empire are there. They're, they're Jewish people, maybe Jewish proselytes, people who've put their faith in the Ju religion of Judaism, and that's the, the religion they're following. But they've all gathered in Jerusalem, people from all over the place, who speak different dialects. But, but in the city, they're all speaking Greek. But that's not their home language. That's not their... That's not their ethnic language that they speak when they're at home in their tribes. Matter of fact, some of the dialects that were in that 5,000 were very unusual dialects, and, and there's no way that those people in that upper room could have known those dialects, especially learned them in just a few moments. But what happens? They spill out into the street, and a crowd begins to gather. And the reason I think there's at least 5,000 people there is because of what Peter does here. 3,000 respond to the gospel. So I'm thinking there's got to be at least 5,000 people. The streets of Jerusalem are very tight and confined. We don't know exactly where the upper room is, but we know it was in the city. And no matter where you are in the city or probably where this upper room would have been, the streets would have been jam-packed with people. And they begin to gather, and they're looking at what's going on with these people who spilled out into the street, and they're speaking in languages they didn't know. And people are hearing those languages. They're hearing Jesus proclaimed, and everybody's going, what is going on? And, and then Peter. No PA system. I don't know if he was standing on a wall or on a high place. I don't know where he was. I know that Peter and the other 11 stand up with him. Peter gets the attention of the crowd. This is the same Peter, the same one who over and over and over again makes a habit of sticking his foot in his mouth. Every time somebody is ready to step forward and speak, that's usually Peter, and when he does, more often than not, he gets it wrong. This Peter who is nothing more than a, than a fisherman, he's, he's not a theologian, he's not a scribe or a Pharisee, he, he's a Jewish boy who grew up to be a fisherman, and one day he meets a guy by the name of Jesus. Jesus says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And Peter spends three and a half years following this Jesus, only when the chips were down and things got hard, he looks around at the people around him and says, this Jesus, I don't even know who he is. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not one of the disciples. I'm not part of that group. I, I have nothing to do with him. And then when he's pressed even further, Peter says, with cursing, I never knew him. Yeah, it's that Peter. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit takes up a boat in your life. He he indwells your life when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and he, he calls you and makes you and empowers you to do something you could have never done on your own. How in the world have I spoken three million words? I have no idea other than the fact that that's the Holy Spirit. It's not me. Yeah, it's that, Peter. No training other than being with Jesus, and that's enough. He's going to preach the first sermon of the New Testament church. As a matter of fact, 
the first act of the New Testament church is a public proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I begin to think, what if I could only speak one more time? I mean, I'm not guaranteed another day on this earth. What if God said to me, son, this is your last swing at bat. This is it. You got one more sermon. You don't have another 3 million words to speak. You've only got another 4,600 to speak. That's it. What do you think we would want to focus our attention on? What, what do you think we would want to focus the attention of the hearers on? Exactly what Peter preaches on the first sermon of the New Testament church. Peter, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, begins to speak. Look at verse 14. In chapter 2 of Acts, Peter standing with the eleven. I think that's important. The eleven are standing with Peter. They're backing him up. These are the twelve who spent 40 days with Jesus. These are the ones who saw Jesus post-resurrection, had meals with him, could see the, the wounds in his wrist, the wounds in his head. They could see it, but yet he's alive. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now Peter is going to start where the crowd is, and as far as they're thinking. He's going to start with what they're already struggling with, and what they're already struggling with is what they're seeing in the streets happening in front of them. And what they're seeing is these people spill out of the upper room, common people, not the priesthood. There were some part of the 120, but, but it's not the Pharisees. It's not the Sadducees. It's not happening at the temple. It's happening in a nowhere house on a nowhere street in the middle of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, these people spill out and something is either miraculous that's happening here or something is just a work of man. It's either one or the other, but it can't be both. And the crowd is thinking, the crowd is thinking, oh, they've, they've been up partying. They've been drinking. I mean, it was 9 o'clock in the morning. They would have had to have been drinking all night long. And, and some of the crowd, I would think the majority of the crowd, thinks that what's happening here is the result of being under the influence of a large amount of alcohol. So the crowd begins to murmur, and they begin to mock, and they begin to, to point out this is nothing more than a work of men, of people who are drunk. You know, I found that the response to the gospel, the response to the proclamation is usually one of, yeah, right. Sure, Jesus is resurrected. Sure, he can change your life. Pastor, you don't know what my life looks like. You don't, you don't know the brokenness in my background. How could you possibly think that God can change my life? That's one response. The other response is, I surrender. Here we have 5,000 people and Peter's going to immediately tell them that this is a work of God. He says, For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he goes back to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Joel was a, he's a prophet we don't know a lot about, but we know that he was sent with a message of judgment to the people of Israel because they had turned their lives once again back towards idolatry. And Joel the prophet speaks of a time that would come in the future. Notice what he says, and in the last days, it shall be God declares, it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter goes back and he pulls this out of Joel and he's going to say to the crowd of 5,000 people, this is being fulfilled in your presence. In other words, this is not the result of alcohol. This is not the work of man. And you've got to understand that what's happening in the street is a work of God that he has sovereignly chosen to do in eternity past. He revealed it to Joel. He revealed it to Isaiah. And now it has come upon you. Notice that verse 17, he says, in the last days. 
That is a common phrase we find in the New Testament. We find it over and over again, in the last days. From the time of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the beginning of the church, we are living in the last days. Now, the last days had a beginning, and the last days will have an end. We're living somewhere in between, and I will offer to you that we're living somewhere on the latter part of those last days. Everything that I see in our world backs up what I see in Scripture, and Scripture says that there are things we can be looking for to know that we're on the latter end of those latter days. So in Joel's prophecy, we have two portions. We have a, a portion that is happening at the moment Peter is speaking. So he says, look, there's going to be a time when God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Well, that has happened in the upper room, just as Jesus promised. And as a result of that, people will then begin, begin to prophesy. And prophesy means to say and deliver the message of God on behalf of God, not only what's about to happen, but what is happening in that moment, both foretelling what's going to happen, foretelling the message of God. That is beginning as Peter right here is ev giving evidence of that. And then we see that young men shall dream dreams. We see that in the New Testament, the inspiration of the Scriptures of the New Testament, the New Covenant, comes to John. And John sees visions of what's going to happen. John comes, goes kind of in a, uh, he's brought up to a heavenly place and he's able to see what is going on in the Spirit. He dreams these dreams and sees these visions. Paul, at one point in his ministry, is taken up into the third heaven and he's able to see things that he couldn't even explain. We see all through the New Testament over and over again, men and women being used of God through signs and wonders to authenticate the message of the gospel. He says, this is going to happen. It's already begun. It's in your face. It's right here. And Joel, hundreds of years previous, had predicted it. But what about this second part? This whole idea of the sun being turned to darkness and the moon the blood before the day of the Lord comes. He, the first part of Joel's prophecy is talking about the first part of the latter days. The latter part of Joel's prophecy is talking about the latter part of the latter days. In other words, there's going to be a time of great judgment that is coming. We see that in Revelation. It was predicted by Daniel and Ezekiel. So when Joel wrote this, he saw it as one event. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration to help you with this. You know, I'm originally from Wilkes County, and, and we go back up there quite often to visit my parents. And there's this, there's this place on Highway 421 on the other side of Yadkinville. I know you all know where all that is, but a little town called Yadkinville. On the other side of it, there's this point on, on the highway. It's a four-lane highway. When you come over and you see the most beautiful mountains in the background, you can see Mount Mitchell in the background if it's a good, clear day. And you can see Mount Mitchell, and you can see all these other mountains, and, and we've hiked up in those areas quite a bit. And I can tell you that from the perception on 421, it looks like those mountains are right together. It looks like Mount Mitchell's right next to some of the other mountains. They're all kind of compacted together. But once you get up there and start hiking, you start finding out that there's hundreds of miles between mountains. So when you look at it from one perspective, as Joel was looking at it, he saw it as all one event. But as God begins to move and sovereignly work out His plan, we find out that there's two portions to Joel's prophecy, one today and one coming in the future. And I think it's the second half that the 5,000 in the streets need to know about. It's the same message you need to know. That if Jesus predicted the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has failed just as He predicted it. Jesus said that He would come again in like manner. Jesus said that there will be a time of great judgment and great destruction upon the earth. And just as we know that Pentecost happened because we're all here today, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that there's going to be a day when the earth will show the signs of God's judgment both in the moon and in the sun. And there will be a great and magnificent day when the Lord Jesus returns just as He predicted, just as He said He would. And the people in those streets needed to know that what's happening in those streets is a work of God, but it doesn't just end there. It's not going to be a one-day event. It's going to go on and on and on. And then one day, Jesus will return. The beauty of Joel's prophecy is that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. The Holy Spirit's not going to be just given to the religious elite. It's not going to be just given to one specific race or creed of people. 
The Holy Spirit's not going to be reserved for those of wealth and those of kings and queens. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on the lowliest of low. Every person that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is now living inside of you, regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of your, ethnic, your, your socioeconomic background. It doesn't, none of that matters. God gives that as a seal upon your life. He gives you spiritual gifts conviction. He empowers you to do what He's called you to do. And you know what? I have not received one more. I haven't received more of the Holy Spirit than you've received. My calling is different. What God has asked me to do may be different than you, but I don't have, I don't have more of the Holy Spirit than you have. It's not like pastors are kind of like up here on some kind of plane and the rest of the congregation is down here. Not at all. We're in this together. It's just my calling is different. What God has done in my life and, and the power that He's worked in my life is available to every single person. But what keeps you from tapping into that is simple obedience. Yielding. Notice what Peter says next. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. I find it interesting that when Peter begins, he refers to Jesus of Nazareth. As if Jesus is just another teacher or prophet. And of course, Nazareth had no good connotation connected to it. If you remember, it was said when Jesus was revealed to be from Nazareth, people would say, has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? It was one of those towns, not known to be a town that you would want to be from. But Peter starts off by describing Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. That word means to be proved through arguments, to be proved through signs and miracles. He was attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. You yourselves know that is an amazing, amazing thing to consider. So among those 5,000 people that are there that day, Peter looks at them and he says, you people know what Jesus did in your presence. So I would imagine there were people there who were standing at the tomb of Lazarus when Lazarus walked out. I would imagine there's people there that watched Jesus heal blind Bartimaeus and give him perfect sight. I would imagine that there were people there in the crowd that day that were, that were around Jesus when he healed the woman with the issue of blood and she never needed a doctor from that day forward. I would imagine there were people all in that crowd who saw the miracles, heard the teachings, saw the wonders, and yet... They think he's just a guy from Nazareth. Peter says, you know that Jesus' words, his works, and his wonders testify to the reality of who he really is. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I don't know if, I don't know if Peter had a long bony finger but if he did, I would imagine that it's at this point in the sermon he went, you. This verse is amazing because what it tells us is, is that God in his sovereignty had decided and chosen in eternity past, the Godhead Trinity, that, that Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice. Long before the universe was created, long before anything hung in space, long before the earth was molded, long before humanity existed, in eternity past, God, the Godhead Trinity, had already determined that Jesus would die for the sins of humanity. And not only that, from, garden, from the Garden of Gethsemane to, to all of the, the, the kangaroo courts that Jesus was put through, there were time after time after time again that God could have intervened. Jesus could have intervened. He could have put a stop to it. In the garden, he tells Peter, Peter, do you not know that I can call down legions of angels and put a stop to this? So we come to a conclusion here, do we not? It wasn't just the Jews who crucified Jesus. It wasn't just Pilate who tried to wash his hands of the whole event. It wasn't just that Barabbas had been traded out for Jesus. The reality is, is that it was in the will of God that God's own son suffer on that cross. Now, you've got to ask the question at this point, why would that happen? What would drive God to do and allow such a thing? Well, you. His love for you, regardless of the mistakes you've made, regardless of the failures.
regardless of the sin, regardless of the addiction, regardless of the broken marriage, in spite of all that, God loved you enough to let His Son be beaten to death and hung before a crowd that hated His guts so that you would have the opportunity to find freedom, peace, love, joy, purpose in life. And His blood is sufficient to not only cover your sins, but erase them from the memory of God forevermore. He says to them, not only was it in the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but you participated. Now, when, when Peter says you, he's talking to that crowd. And in that crowd, there are people who were standing at the courtyard of Pilate. When Pilate looks at the crowd and he says to the crowd, who shall I give you? Shall I give you Barabbas? Or, or shall I give you Jesus from Nazareth? And you know what the crowd says? Give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. There are people standing in the streets, maybe even on the front row of where Peter is preaching, who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. The hands of lawless men. There would have been people there that followed Jesus all the way up the streets as he was kicked. There, there, there may even be people here who were spitting upon him and kicking him and punching him and mocking him. There's probably people in the street who, who were on that hillside when God turns out the lights as Jesus, the Son of God, is crying out his last breaths of life. There are people in the streets who were there that day and witnessed the power of God and yet deny it. But see, one thing they, they didn't take into account, verse 24, God raised him up by loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, his miracles, his, his, his words, his, his ministry testified to the fact that Jesus is more than just a man from Nazareth. He's God in the flesh, and therefore, being God in the flesh, there was no way that death could hold him. There was no way that death could keep him down. There's no way that Jesus was not going to resurrect. And I wonder if when Peter says this, he says this with a little bit of sarcasm. You guys thought you killed him. You thought you were done with him. But three days later, guess what? I spent 40 days with him. But trust me when I tell you, Jesus is very much alive. Because death could not hold him. That Loosing the pains of death, that's the same phrase that we find in the idea of, of childbearing, giving birth to a child. Peter says, just as much as Jesus could not be held down by death, is that when a woman goes into labor, there's a baby going to come at the end of that event. Trust me when I tell you. You're not going to stop it. He loosed the pains. Jesus resurrected. And David knew that it was going to happen in advance. Look at this. The people in the streets would have been, well, they would have held David to a very, very high degree. King David, I mean, the nation of Israel, unified, powerful, wealthy. David was a man after God's own heart. The people in the streets would have had great, great reverence for David. And not only that, they are still looking for a Messiah. Those Jewish people in the street, those 5,000 strong, do not believe that this man who hung on a cross and was shamed publicly could ever be the Messiah. But guess what Peter says? David knew. David knew. Not only was David a king, but he was a prophet. Psalm 16 is where Peter gets this from. He says, I saw the Lord before me always, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. In other words, David is saying, the Lord has walked with me, empowered me to do what he's called me to do. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. And you will not let your Holy One your Holy One, see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter goes on to say, now guys, listen. David's tomb and grave is with us to this day. People would have frequented it often. So, so what is David talking about? Peter goes on to say that, that David as a prophet, saw that one day there would be one of his own sons 
that death would not be able to hold on to. That he would overcome our great enemy, death itself. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him. Notice that. God has sworn an oath to David. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll see where God speaks to David. And he says to David, David, I'm going to make an agreement, a covenant with you. And part of that covenant agreement was is that, that one day David would have an offspring, a son, that would sit upon a throne of a kingdom that would never end. Now in David's day, all they knew was kingdoms rising and falling, rising and falling. So I'm imagining that, that, that David had to really perk up and think about that because there would be a king who would never die. There would be a king whose kingdom would never end. And it would have to be this king who overcomes death. He said, verse 31, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, and that Christ would not be given over to death, that He would conquer it. This Jesus God raised up, and all that we are, the, and all of that, we are all witnesses. I would imagine that Peter looks at the eleven standing around him. He says, "Okay, we all witness the resurrection." Now, at this particular moment, in the streets, in the streets of Jerusalem, there's all kinds of rumors flying about Jesus. The Romans have cooked up an idea that the the disciples have come and stolen his body. Now, there's another story that's going to be perpetuated eventually: is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross that he, would, he just kind of went into a coma-like state. They place him in a tomb, and when he gets in that cool tomb, he just kind of wakes up. Can I just say to you that no matter what you research, no matter what you Google search on, on Google about the resurrection, you're going to come back to the reality that something happened in Jerusalem that changed the world, and I'll tell you what it was. Jesus Christ, the righteous who had been dead for three days, walks out with power, authority, and life. That's what you'll come back to. You can do all the research you want to find. You can do all that stuff, and you'll find that all these arguments are absolute foolishness, and you're going to come back to the same place you are today that if Jesus resurrected, that requires something of me. Peter says, we're all witnesses. This Jesus that you thought you killed, all those rumors that you're believing, trust me when I tell you, We've all witnessed it. We've sat with him. We've talked with him. And that's what's happening today is our lives has been changed as a result of it. Being therefore exalted. Now Peter moves from the, from the burial, from the, res, from the crucifixion to the resurrection. Now he's moving to the exaltation or the ascension. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He says, look right in front of you. The evidence that Jesus has been exalted and has poured out the Holy Spirit is right in front of you. It's not because of alcohol. It's because we've been changed as men and women on the inside out. We have been changed. And when you've been changed, you can't keep that to yourself. It's going to come out of your life. And if it's not coming out of your life, then we have to ask the question, has there been a change? He says to them, what you're seeing and what you're witnessing, that's, that's the king at work. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Look at verse 34. So, so uh, Peter goes back and he pulls Psalm 110 and he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens. As great as David was, his grave is with us to this day, and he did not ascend back to the Father. Only Jesus accomplished that. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you go back and you look at this psalm and you look at that particular verse, what you have is in the Hebrew language, you've got God speaking to the Son. And in that text, it says, Yahweh speaks to Adonai. And we look at that and we go, okay, so God is speaking to Jesus. And then, and then David understands that his son, many, many, many generations removed, is his Lord. And no one in Hebrew culture would have ever referred to a great, 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 how many greats you want to have, grandson, as their Lord. But you see, David recognized something through that resurrection vision that he had, through the understanding that there would be a son who would come. He understands that there will be a son that comes from him that will be his Lord. But it's this next part that I think Peter was wanting to emphasize. 
You see, the Lord has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He has accomplished all that He needs to accomplish. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. Now He's going to make all of His enemies His footstool. Guess who's standing in the streets? Guess who you were before you came to faith in Christ? You were not just alienated. You were not just on the outside looking in, but you were an enemy of the cross. And in this crowd, this crowd has blood on their hands. The blood of the perfect Son of God when they cried crucified. So when Peter begins to emphasize that Jesus has been exalted, Joel said that there's going to be a day of judgment. There's going to be a day that he returns. And, he, and every one of Jesus' enemy is going to be under his foot. I would imagine that if you were in the crowd and you were crying crucify, it's at this moment your attention is on what Peter's got to say next. Because what really should happen what really should happen is if they were enemies of the cross, then what, what, do, what do kings do to enemies? They take them out. They destroy them. But, but you know what this king's going to do? Listen to what Peter says. He says, House of Israel, therefore know for certain. Know for certain. Let me pause here for just a moment. Did you know that you can know for certain? Peter says to the crowd, that they can know for certain not only who Jesus really is, He's not just a guy from Nazareth, that He's more than that, but that you can know where you stand with a holy God. It's not something you can just kind of hope works out, but you can know. He says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. Notice where we started out. We started out as Jesus of Nazareth, a nowhere town, a carpenter's son, just another good teacher, right? Notice where we end up. That this Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord. He's God in the flesh. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. All knees will bow. Every tongue will confess. There is no one greater. It doesn't matter if you go pray to a tomb at Mecca with Muhammad in it. It doesn't matter if you honor Buddha. They all died, one resurrected. And he says, he says here, this Jesus, you can know for certain, is the King of kings. He is both Lord and Christ. He is both God in the flesh, and He is the Anointed One, the Messiah. No one else fits the criteria. No one even comes close. The miracles testify to it. His resurrection testifies to it. And now it's time for you to make a choice. Will you believe or will you reject? Remember this Jesus whom you crucified? He's going to make all of his enemies his footstool. You reject Jesus long enough, you keep rejecting the gospel long enough, you keep thinking you're going to work it out on your own, one day you will be a footstool to the King of kings. In other words, one day you will suffer under the wrath of an almighty God through Jesus Christ, his son. You keep rejecting, there's going to be circumstances to that. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That word cut means to be pierced. Is the Holy Spirit piercing your heart? Let, let me, sometimes it's kind of hard to describe, and I don't want to get caught up in feelings and hair standing up on the back of your neck, but I think, I think you know when the Word of God is being proclaimed and the Holy Spirit begins to do a work in you and He begins to do something inside of you that, that you can't even explain. And he begins to pierce your heart. I think that's a good description. He begins to cut that heart. He begins to deal with you down the real you, the one that you can't hide, the one you can put all the mask on, but God is dealing with the real you, the one that's behind all of that because he knows who you really are. And said to Peter, the, the ones who were being cut to the heart, he said, they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, I love this, brothers, what shall we do? Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Christ, resurrected, exalted, coming again, will make all enemies his footstool. It's time to say, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent. 
He says, repent and be baptized. Don't think for a moment that what he's talking about here, baptism, immersion in water, don't think for a moment that that somehow brings salvation. It does not. It is an image, a picture, a story of what has already happened in the heart. Repentance and faith comes first. Baptism on down the line. Baptism does not result in salvation. You can get dipped in water over and over and over again. If you don't put your faith in Jesus, you're just as lost as someone who's never heard the gospel in their life. So if you're putting your faith in baptism, if you're putting your faith in getting wet in a tank of water somewhere or in a river, if that's what you've been coasting on your whole life, if that's what it is, then make no mistake about it. When you stand before Jesus Christ, He will say to you, I never knew you because you never put faith in me and you didn't repent. I can't say it any clearer than that. Peter says repent. Well, what is repentance? Let me tell you what repentance is not. I think, I think that'll help. Repentance is not just remorse, regret that you got caught. So for the people in Peter's crowd that day, they're like, oh my goodness, he knows. He, he's like, he knows that we were involved, even crying out, crucified. He knows, oh, I, I feel bad. I feel bad that this guy got crucified. I feel bad. I, I regret that that happened. If that's all you've got, if, if all you've got is a bad feeling, if all you've got is you just got caught with your hand in the cookie jar, if, if your adultery has now come out into public view, and you just feel bad about that, can I tell you that feeling bad about getting caught is not repentance. Repentance is not a hollow prayer that we pray. What I mean by hollow is we just go through the motion, oh, God, forgive me, as if what we've done is no big deal. Oh, well, I, I, and even this, I, I've even heard this, and I've even done this. Well, I'm going to go ahead and participate in this sin because I like it, my flesh longs for it, and I know that I can just ask forgiveness tomorrow and everything will be okay. That's, that's what I'm talking about, hollow prayer, meaningless. That's not repentance. Repentance is not justifying our disobedience. What do I mean by that? Well, we know that this thing is a thing we're not to be participating. We know that this is bringing damage and destruction into our life. Yet, we take God's Word and we lower it down and we go, yeah, God didn't really say anything about that, did He? Same thing that Satan did in the garden. Did God really say? Let me tell you what repentance is. I'm going to give you four things real quick about repentance. Is. And I want you to know this applies to everybody in the house. Whether you're lost born again, whether you are, where you are, your heart is being pierced right now, or whether you've been born again and you've been walking with Jesus for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, this applies to you. Number one, true repentance begins with the awareness of one's own guilt. Imagine the people in the crowd that day who or participating in the crucifixion of the Son of God. For some of them, they're going to become very aware of their own brokenness and their own sin. The number one response that I get from folks about following Jesus is, well, I'm a good person. But is that being a good person, is that going to be enough? If you could be good enough, then why did Jesus have to go through all that suffering? The first step in repentance is the awareness of our own sin and our own guilt and our own brokenness. And then we move to step two. And step two is we begin to seek God's mercy through Jesus. So we, we understand our own brokenness, but we, we can't stay there. So the next step is that we begin to seek God's mercy. We begin to seek God's forgiveness. Listen, lost person, you need the forgiveness of God. You need that guilt forgiven and taken away. And you can't deal with that on your own. It's too big. Awareness of your own guilt and sin. Number two, you're seeking God's mercy through Jesus. Number three, there's going to be a change of your attitude and your action. I think a lot of church folk, I think we're okay with one and two. It's part three we got the problem with. A change. That because we recognize that God's grace and God's mercy, we didn't deserve the forgiveness that we've been given. So out of that, out of that flows this desire to want to follow God and this desire to 
to stay away from the pitfalls of sin and disobedience and brokenness. And if I've been, if, look, what blows my mind is how we go through the mess, we make the bad choices, we go through the circumstances, we come out on the other side, and what do we do? We go right back to the same mess we came out of. That's not repentance. It's a change in attitude and action. And in that, we begin to hate the sin as God hates it. And then finally, we pursue walking with God in obedience. Jesus said, if you'll abide in me, if that, if that branch will stay connected to the vine, he gives this illustration of a grapevine, and Jesus being the vine, we're the branches, we stay connected. Life-giving nourishment flows from the vine into the branches, and out of the branches we bear fruit. In other words, we abide, we walk with God in obedience and holiness. Repentance always leads there. As Peter is closing this sermon, and as I close mine, he says to the people, Repentance is what is most needed. What shall we do, brothers and sisters? What shall we do if we're lost? What shall we do if we started following Jesus and we've got off the path and we've got into these other things and those things have become our gods? What shall we do, brothers and sisters? We say the same thing that Peter said to that crowd of 5,000. Repent. Father in heaven, This first sermon of the New Testament church is a powerful one. And Father, what took Peter 10 minutes to say has taken me 40, and I still haven't got it all said. So, your word will not return void. We end where we began. Father, just like rain that comes down upon the earth and waters the seed, and the seed bursts forth, and out of the ground comes vegetation and life bearing fruit, your word has been proclaimed in a broken in a broken way. But Father, you are watering the soil. And the fruit that you're looking for today is fruit of repentance, which we've already described what that is. So what shall we do? Knowing that Jesus Christ is the righteous King knowing that He accomplished all that He came to accomplish, understanding that every enemy will become His footstool, recognizing that if grace was available to the people in the streets that day who cried, crucify, then certainly Your grace is available today. Father, let no one walk out of this building without obedience and understanding that you love them with an everlasting love. That no sin they've committed, no path they've walked, that they've gone beyond your grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 